you know, you're under the barbell a ton. Like I was one of those meathead guys, like grinding the grinding weights, trying to push those numbers. And everyone said, Oh, you know, you hit these metrics two times body weight. That's going to help your sprint performance, yada, 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 all these different conversations. And I had a conversation with Brad. It's like, you know, strength is a skill, right? Speed is a skill. Power development is a skill. And if you never train at those contractile velocities, then what are you doing? Like you're, you're out of practice. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. His name is Logan Paulson. And while he may not have a name in Project Mayhem, he does have a name on the back of an NFL jersey. That is correct. This former pro athlete satisfies your craving for some topical football chit chat while also bringing some serious science to the table about the development of speed and power. Here it is, episode 630. Welcome, Logan Paulson, um, undrafted free agent, walking into a 10-year NFL career. That's no easy feat. CSCS and now color commentary, amongst other things. And we're going to get into training. Uh, you got an awesome sprint mechanics tool that we, we want to highlight as well. So mm-hmm. there's so much to talk about, man. Uh, I want to get into the, the undrafted rookie free agent, that opportunity, turning into a 10-year NFL career. I know John wants to talk training specifics, so we got a world of stuff to cover, my man. So, Logan, what is what is a quick two minute intro that people can or take longer? Away? I mean, there's no way he's going to be able to can this into two minutes. So let's give well, the guy a little I bit. If I tell of- two and he takes <laughs> ten, I'm not mad. All right, so I'll try to keep it two minutes. I'll put my time on right now. Okay, so basically, uh, I got hurt my true senior year in college, and then I broke my foot, redshirted medical, uh, played my last year, and then all kind of the interest around me playing in the NFL kind of died down. But there were a couple teams as like priority free agents, which was great because I kind of got to pick where I wanted to go, you know. So um, it, it just ended up kind of serendipitously being that my tight end coach, my freshman year of college, was the tight end coach in Washington. His name is John Emery. John, I think you might actually know him yeah. from your time in Kansas City. And he's an awesome dude. And he basically said, like, I'm going to go to bat for you. The scouts here like you. And I think there's an opportunity to make the team. So I kind of did the numbers game, which John probably knows really well. You say they've got. Chris Cooley, Fred Davis, but there's nobody else like that three spot for the tight end is open. So maybe I could kind of sneak in there and get there. And I had no expectations of like playing in the NFL. Like I was getting ready to go to like law school. You know what I mean? Like I thought, well, this will be fun. I'll do this for a couple months. And then, you know, like, cause nobody plays in the NFL. My, my, my family background is very academic in nature. My dad, uh, you know, was an engineer. My, my grandfather's a doctor. My uncle's a lawyer. Like my, uh, my aunt is a nurse, like she went to Tufts, right? So very kind of academic and like me playing football was like this cute thing that everybody did, but you know, it wasn't like a career path. And so when I went to training camp, I just like, I'm going to treat it like a job. You know, my dad worked at the same job for about 40 years and like, he never missed a day, never called in sick. Like, and that's how I approached my time during that first mini camp. And like, so I go to bed early, study my book, guys would go out, party, have a couple of beers. And I was in there grinding the playbook and it came down to me and this other guy they cut the other guy and they said, Oh, we're going to put you on practice squad. So I was like, this is great. I was out to lunch with one of my buddies and he was like, I got a call from the owner and, um, or the, uh, the general manager. And I thought it was a prank call from one of my friends. And so I called my agent. He said, no, that's real deal. You're on the team. So I made the 53 as a rookie, which was really cool. And then, um, just kind of was like that backup guy who was just grinding in practice, trying to make sure I was prepped every week. And then there was an injury. And the door opened for me and I got to start a couple of years here in Washington, had some productive, some productive years. And then, you know, all good things must come to an end. And I got cut in Washington. You know, they signed uh, 
Vernon Davis at the time. And, you know, everyone thought Vernon was done. And then like the second you saw him run for the first time in practice, you're like, Oh no, like you're still an athletic freak. So I should probably start looking for work. And um, then I kind of had like a little bit of a whirlwind tour in the NFL. So Chicago, San Francisco, Atlanta, and Houston were kind of my last four years in the league, which was great because I got to see some different stuff about the NFL, but also very challenging from like a personal standpoint, because, you know, my wife was pregnant. I had a kid like they're all they stayed in uh, Virginia, where Washington is the, the, the team facility is. And I was kind of moving all these different states and doing all these different things. So um, that was a tough deal, but it was it was a great experience and one that changed my life forever. And I think really showed me who I am as a human being, because I faced tremendous physical and emotional adversity during that time. And um, I'll be forever grateful for Damn. it. Sounds a lot like my story. Yeah. yeah I mean, should have been a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. No, what, I, really? get out of here. No, Weren't you drafted in the first round or something crazy like that? We're all the good ones. Oh, okay. But, right, well, uh, no, I mean, same deal, man. I, I was, <laughs> uh, you know, graduating four years at Berkeley, did my master's in my fifth year in education. And then, uh, ended up applying for a law, uh, a scholarship to go to law school at Bolt Hall, which they had a, a you know, for a Cal Letterman to go to Bolt mm. called the Adrian Cragen scholarship. And then I got drafted in the fourth round. I was the second pick. And I was like, man, I really didn't know. I figured like I play for a, for a minute, get a little bit of money and then go to law school. And then that became 10 years and I came in and started as a rookie. So it was, uh, it was yeah. kind of like, you know, once I got there and I realized like, holy shit, like the jump from high school to college was dramatically bigger than the jump from, you know, college to the NFL. Like I got there and shit, I was a starter out, uh, after minicamp and, um, you know, and then went on and started a whole bunch of games. So it was a uh, same kind of a deal though. I mean, my dad's a lawyer, my brother's a lawyer, my other brother went to law school and now he does, um, uh, construction insurance stuff. So, I mean, like, you know, like playing in the NFL was outside the norm. And, you know, my granddad was a engineer, my uncle's an engineer, right. So, I mean, everybody's pretty well educated and to be able to, you know, put your hand in the dirt and beat people up. I mean, it was cool, but, you know, wasn't necessarily like our family, you know, trajectory, I would say. So kind of similar. In that <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And like, I felt the same way about the college. High school to college was way more difficult, I thought, than uh, the college, the NFL. I don't know. Just like when football became the only thing, it, it became I don't say easier, but like that was your sole focus, you know, and you could pour everything into it. So people always ask me and like when you're coming from high school, you're like you've got that puberty kind of developmental gap physically, you know, so you're going against your 18 or 17 coming into college and you're going up against a guy who's 23 years old and been lifted in a college weight room for, you know, five years and is an absolute monster. And you're like, oh, my gosh. So the, the physical discrepancy is huge. And when you get to the NFL, it's really just you know, an athleticism, speed mentality kind of thing. And if you're wired the right way, that jump isn't no, I mean, steep, I, remember, I don't think. Uh, I was 6'4 when I went to college, and I was 6'6 when I left. So I grew two inches my uh, freshman sophomore <laughs> year. So, I mean, like, I didn't own a razor. My uh, my roommate, wow. when I showed up as a rookie, he uh, he had, like, a full beard. And he's like, I've been shaving since I was 12. And uh -huh. he's like, where's your razor? I'm like, fuck, dude, I've never <laughs> shaved. And, uh, you know, he was already 300 pounds. I mean, I was only, like, 255, 260. And then I wasn't 300 until yeah. I was probably 20 or 21. And then I played most of my career at 308, 310, yeah. somewhere in there. You know, now these dudes are, I mean, I don't know, man. I always think, like, especially with the NFL and the speed aspect, you know, they they want, you know, these dudes to be such fucking monsters. But when I watch them play, dude, they're still fucking futsal. Well, dude, I don't know. It's, I think now, because this is like, we're going to get into like a little bit of football yeah, talk. Hopefully that's okay. But I do think that like, because the league is becoming more pass centric, like the foot speed element is not as important, right? Because everyone thinks that you need to be a good athlete to be a good pass protector. Like you can be a good athlete, which is 100% true. You got guys like Trent Williams who are phenomenal athletes, like basketball players, or you go like Orlando Brown, who's like 375 and like 6'8". 
and just gets in the way, right? And just can kind of eliminate your bull rush as an option, keep that pocket width for the quarterback. And I think that that's something that is going to be an interesting evolution over the next probably five to six years in the NFL is do you get these supersized freaks? I mean, the, the heaviest player ever was just drafted, uh, you know, the kid from Minnesota, Daniel Falele, to the Baltimore Ravens. He's 6'9", I think he's 390, you know what I mean? He's a good athlete, obviously, for that size. But again, you draft that guy because he can keep the pocket width and he takes off bull rushes, which compress the pocket, right? So I think as the league moves in this kind of pass-centric direction, you're going to get these more, these larger, freaky kind of guys. And as you more move away from that kind of Mike Shanahan, outside zone, run first kind of philosophy, the pass protection becomes more important and the body well, and, size and becomes they're, more They're important. teaching these big bodies just to go vertical. So it's not as if they're in like a yeah. situation mm-hmm. where, you know, there's any play action anymore where all of a sudden you got to take a step and try to jump a guy, widen the pocket and do some things. Like yeah. they're so uh, in their box of like, all right, you're on a railroad track. I just need you to set vertical and get your big body in the way and go to a five to seven step drop. And every one of these yeah. quarterbacks release is so fucking fast now. I mean, dude, like, uh, like yep. every single dude, like they, as soon as they bring the ball, it comes up to the ear. It's gone. Like there's no big, you know, uh, yep. Tim Tebow where he's got the real slow, like loping. I mean, they got rid of all those dudes. So quick releases, quick steps yep. and fucking monsters that just get in the way and they're not running the ball for shit anymore. Like, I don't even think there's a team that has a fullback on the roster anymore. Well, and if they're running it, Tennessee you know? still pretty run heavy. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's Rabel though. I mean, you know, Raves is always going to do that because that's that Belichick thing. There are a couple of teams that are still run heavy, like Baltimore being one of them, obviously with Lamar Jackson and like the quarterback run game is something that's kind of revolutionized the NFL. I think a good example of what you're talking about, John, is like the Buffalo Bills, right? They use the quarterback to kind of supplement their run game. They're in these like three wide receiver sets, right? And the run game is all the, the running back becomes the fullback. You yep. don't even carry one on the roster. I think they dress one tight end on game day, right? So much smaller creates some space. And as you know, as a, as a blocker, sometimes everyone thinks you need to add tight ends, you need to add fullbacks. But every time you do that, you're adding bodies to the box, you know? And I think um, obviously you want to kind of, there's two schools of thought. You get really good tight ends, you get really good fullbacks. And you say, our guys can beat your guys. Or you say, let's get these linebackers out in space and let our offensive line do what they're supposed to do and then be plus one because Josh Allen can run the football. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's a shift in thought kind of to that college football. Well, that and also uh, like with the, you know, with the changing of the rules and the effect of that uh, quarterback is not necessarily a target like he used to be that, um, you know, oh, yeah. these dudes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, drop back there. They know they're never going to take a big shot. And, um, you know, cause uh, as you know, I mean, I don't know how many times you got fined, but there's nothing more depressing then coming in on Monday and seeing that FedEx deal and realizing you're going to get fined fifteen or twenty five thousand dollars, and I, dude, I got fined ten grand in the preseason game one year, and so I uh, for a late hit, for or not, not necessarily a late hit, but what they called is I was having a, a deemed of having a history of violence because I was picking dudes off around the pile. So I mean, dude, that's something, yeah, like that. I when you watch like old John Runyon stuff, you know, like you don't dude, see that. That was our deal. Anymore. You know we what I mean? A, it's like we had a pot with like yeah, Runyon and I like picking dudes off around the pile. And then what they started doing is he just, yeah. I mean, dude, when we got slapped with that big fine in preseason, you're like, dude, I just played this entire preseason and, you know, half of the first game for free. For free. And, uh, you know, yeah. and what they said is like, we, you've demonstrated a history of violence that we're no longer going to deal with. So we're just going to fine you into oblivion, which is, yeah. you know, how they got rid of Chuck Cecil and all those other guys, you know, Timmy Houck, who's now a, a you know, safety mm-hmm. coach. They basically find Timmy out of the league. Cause he would just fucking missile dudes. I mean, he ended Michael Urban's career and they yeah. were pissed about it. Well, dude, it's crazy to think like I remember 
my rookie year, which was 2010 and going to Philadelphia and the defense, like talking in hush whispers about that offensive line group and how mean they were even then, you know, how, if you're standing around a pile, like your head's got to be on a swivel, like don't end up on ESPN. Like don't be the reason someone's getting fined. And like, it created this culture, this mindset of going into Philly that had like a psychological impact, you know, like kind of in the same way, like the Philadelphia Flyers had like those, all those good Mm -hmm. fighters on the hockey team. Like I felt like the offensive line kind of embodied that same thing. And it's something that I've always thought about. Like if you, if you get, just take that physical envelope as far as you're willing to go as a coach or someone constructing a roster, like you can still do some gnarly stuff, you know, like getting the right kind of people in our room together and how it just intimidates other rosters around even the NFL, you know, even in this yeah. kind of play kit. No, I mean, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it was like that. I mean, but like that NFC East deal where we were playing the giants and the Redskins and whatever. I mean, dude, uh, uh, and I've told the story, man, like the last play of Bruce Smith's career, I knocked him unconscious on a peel back. Yeah. Knocked him out. Did he you? got off the field and just walked off last game. And then I didn't see him until the, uh, the, uh, the Super Bowl two years later. And he fucking walks around the bar and I'm like, oh shit, Bruce Smith's coming to fight me. And he's like, you knocked me unconscious <laughs> in my last play. And then we sat there and had a bunch of drinks and I was like, can you vote me all the fame speech until this? He's like, fuck you. Um, but uh, no, man, like it, it was really interesting. Like that was um, so intimidating to defenses when dudes were, you know, big dudes are flying downfield, knocking them out. And it was, uh, it was part of the game. And then they just didn't fucking want anymore. So they just find us into oblivion. And yeah. um, now it's like you don't see these guys pass rushing like they used to. They won't hit the quarterbacks. They're trying to do this one arm Olay bullshit. And these quarterbacks know it. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, it, yeah. even though it's made it for a shittier game, it's more points. Uh, fantasy football is blowing up. And, yeah. you know, when they're paying a dude a half a billion dollars, the last thing they want to do is have some asshole roll them up and hurt them. So, I mean, you know, they're protecting their investment. Yeah, it's true. It's interesting, man. Like when you were talking about, like, I remember my, obviously I kind of got the tail end of like down and dirty NFL, but I remember dudes like on kickoff, you know, with the old four man wedge getting knocked unconscious, like asleep, <laughs> like you could hear them on the mm-hmm. sidelines, like snoring and they would just pop up. The trainer would come over on the field. They'd give them a little smelling salt. And then they were like back in on the next kickoff or like a guy would like fake a hamstring pull when they were unconscious. You know what I mean? Like the game just changed so drastically. You know what I mean? Like during my 10 years, I'm sure it changed a lot for you, but like, it was like this, it, was, it just became so different. The the values became so different in a good way. I think the concussion thing is great. I don't think you want dudes having like, you know, CTE for the rest of their lives, but it was just the, how, and how immediate it all happened. Like, I just find really fascinating. It's like a, you know, like just an evaluation of a societal ideology, you know, towards something yeah, like, well, the, like the NFL. Um, you know, when you got dudes committing suicide, like, you know, like the NFL at the end of the day is always going to be a media company. And the one thing that can't survive is bad optics. I mean, look at the Ray Rice deal. I mean, you know, yeah. they suspended him until that video yeah. came out. And then we saw the ferocity, which he hit his, his girl. And that dude was pursued in that mm-hmm. gratis for the rest. I mean, he was fucking out. So, I mean, they were willing to like let it slide until yeah. they saw the optics of how hard he hit her. I mean, he fucking lit her up and they were like, yeah. you can never come back. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you got Junior Seau killing himself. I mean, you got all these dudes doing wacky stuff. They have to make a change. And, um, you know, um, yeah. sad, uh, I don't know if you remember, do you remember a guy named Kevin Turner? And he was a fullback when I was oh, in, yeah. in uh, Philadelphia and he was like kind of the old vet and he was only like seven or eight years when I came in as a rookie. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he passed away from ALS yesterday was his birthday. That's why I'm bringing it up. And, uh, you know, I saw that pop up on my yeah. Facebook and like, you know, he was a, a cool old vet when I was, a and, you know, looked old as shit in year seven or eight, which means he was only probably like 31. And that dude might as well have been 51. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, um, I think things had to change. 
Um, but you know, with change, mm-hmm. you always kind of get this deal where it's like, you know, it's, it's morphed into what it is now. And, um, it's not at all the game when I, you know, that I enjoyed and when I watch it, it looks very just neutered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is neutered, but I think, like you said, it had to happen. And I think it's, you know, for the well health and well being of the players, like we, we already talked about like practice structures and how that's to me, that's probably more beneficial than even the targeting stuff. Cause you imagine like, I remember talking to our linebacker coach in Atlanta and he was saying he played in the NFL for 10 years and he was saying there was not a day they were in full pads. They didn't have not have Mm -hmm. some type of color out. So like red, white, yellow, which is indicative of brain trauma. And I was like every day he's like, yeah. And he's like, think about this, dude, we were in pads Mm -hmm. during OTAs. You know what I mean? We were in full pads and OTAs. So those are all hits, you know, that's 90 hits in OTAs. That's 90 hits in training camp. That's 90 hits in, in practice in season. And those things add up. And I can't think of, you know, like because of the practice structure changing, you know, and it, and it doesn't lead to these old calloused war daddies that you kind of idolize. Like I remember coming to the locker room mm-hmm. with like Philip Daniels, you know, and they just don't make dudes like Philip Daniels anymore. Like you guys probably know who that is, but many times. he's six, six, he's, but 315 playing defensive end and could deadlift 700 pounds, could back squat 600 with terrible technique, just was a dude made for a different time, made to like charge in, in a battlefield and cleave you in half <laughs> with a broadsword. And like, they just yeah. don't make those dudes anymore. They just don't do it because they don't fit the game the same way they used to. Right. So I, in some ways that's disappointing. You don't get those like hyper freaks, hyper physical, different kind of cut guys. But uh, again, I think it's better for the long term. Yeah, no, the game um, for sure. I remember when I came in the NFL, uh, they told me I would know I'd get a, or I knew I would have a concussion if I got knocked unconscious. And then it, and then that same yeah, talk right. 10 years later was like, you'll know you have a concussion when you feel any form of disorientation. So like when you hit and you get your bell rung, yeah. you can't see straight, uh, your ears ring and this and the lady's like, how many concussions do you have? And I'm like, 70,000. Like, like, I mean, I, yeah, no, it's I mean, true dude, though. There wasn't, it's I mean, true, so man. the, uh, it, uh, like the games were, I'll tell you this pregame warm up. There was a dude on our team in Kansas city named Eric Hicks. Uh, he was defensive end. Eric had an extremely hard head and a great dude, but a fucking oh, knucklehead. And so we would do our, our stuff. And I remember mm-hmm. like the first few uh, games when I went there, we came out and to the point where I hurt myself in preseason, I mean, in pregame. Like I went in thinking yeah. like, there's no way I could play in this fucking game. Like I, I'm legitimately roll my bunk yeah. or uh, fuck my head up. And then finally he rolls over to me. He's like, Hey man, can we uh, uh, chill out a little bit in pregame? Cause I think I fucking hurt myself. And I was like, okay, yeah, man, if you need me to, <laughs> you know, and then we just started patty caking him a little bit and thank God, because those first few games, dude, like uh, we, like the first yeah. game I played for Kansas city, we played a season opener in mile high stadium and uh, I fucked myself up so bad in pre uh, pregame uh, going against him that uh, I like it. It took me like two or three quarters to even figure out where the fuck I was. And I was over there right. trying to take yeah. oxygen, drinking water. I even asked him for an asthma inhaler because I just couldn't figure it out. And then I was like, I don't have asthma. Yeah. Like, like, I've never taken oxygen. And then I realized <laughs> I was like, fuck, dude, I'm like I'm fucked up. Like I could see the, the, the scar on my head on my, uh, on my helmet. So. Yeah, I mean, that was like yeah. a real thing, but like it wasn't necessarily the games that were bad at all. It was the fact that we went from one on one to nine on seven to inside run drill to fucking one on one pass, 11 on 11, full bullets flying. And the only person that wasn't, uh, you know, open to be hit was the quarterback. So, I mean, it was fucking full go. And we did that for two and a half hours twice a day for, for weeks on end. And uh, yeah. like, that's where I think the real fucking scars happen. 
Well, do so. Yeah, it's crazy. Like one of the things you asked me about my career and one of the things that I did in my playing career was I treated every single practice and like pads, no pads, like it was full speed. So like I'm out there like a freaking psychopath, you know what I mean? Like, and that, that is, that has a cumulative effect on like your life, you know? And like, thank God we didn't have too many, you know, too many padded practices. Cause like I said, I was post, most of my career was post CBA, but like, um, yeah, man, it, and like, it's, it's brutal. Like you're watching OTA practices now and they're a little bit neuter, but still like the offensive line is like getting after it a little bit, you know what I'm saying? And like, those are real head knocks. Those count, you know, it's not like they don't count because you don't have shoulder pads on. So I do think it is important that fans understand that like this, 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 this effect that this, this game has on you is not from the game. It's from the practices and from the off season yeah. and all that kind no, of stuff. It's, uh, yeah. I don't know. Like, like there's a weird part of me with this where, uh, I remember the game at which I played and like the ferocity and the fact that, uh, you know, what I loved was the fact that I got paid a ton of money to run out there and one-on-one fist fight a dude for three hours in front of millions of people. And now I see it and, uh, it just looks like patty cake. And when I see dudes like, like we were talking about, like seeing JJ Watt out there, just tearing these dudes up who are just kind of like not putting their head on. I'm just kind of patty cake, patty cake. I mean, the dude's got long arms and you got to put your chin on that dude and try to knock him out. And these dudes want no part of putting their head in there. They're just kind of patty caking him, shorting him set or uh, doing short sets, letting him get the outside hook every time. And I see it and it just like, I'm like, fuck, dude, we would have broken that dude's ribs. I mean, uh, not to tell you more war stories, yeah. but we went to uh, when I was playing in Philly, we went down to uh, play Miami Dolphins and Jason Taylor was playing great. And uh, Trey Thomas, who's our left tackle, mm-hmm. uh, decides that his back is hurt, comes over on the last bus and doesn't tell us this until he shows up on the last bus and says, I ain't playing. And uh, right. our, my backup right. was a dude named Artis what? Hicks. And we were like artists. Like, we only dress seven. And, like, you got to go play left tackle against Jason Taylor who he's having his career year. And uh, so we go out. And, and I was like, hey, man, like, then, you know, the coach is like, what do we do? What do we do? I'm like, we're going to slide two jet. We're just going to go two jet every time. Slide to the left. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to try to get him on the island. Sure enough, first time he did, we slid. He, he does this real big inside move. I put my helmet in his rib and busted his rib. He never rushed again and he left the game yeah. and artists end up getting the game ball. And he's like, yeah, I think Johnny gets the game ball. Cause he, if he hadn't fucked that dude up, I would have <laughs> got my ass kicked. And you know, that shit was real. Yeah. And like, I knew that when he comes inside, I was going to make him pay. And like, it ended up working out well for us. Yeah. But like, you know, there were people that legitimately, I mean, I can tell you the amount of stories I had where dudes legitimately saw their career flashing before their eyes and didn't want to go out there. I mean, you go against Dwight Freeney, that shit happened yeah. numerous times. I watched numerous guys fucking yeah. shrink. But- what they call it like uh, with DBs, they call it the Randy Moss flu, right? Like anytime you, uh, you're going against Randy Moss, everyone gets a little sick. They get a little hammy, glutes a little tight, can't go today, bro. And so, you know, you got to like, yeah, I get it. When you're going against really good players, man, you got to yeah, make business but, uh, decisions. Um, you know what? That's the shitty part. Like, I think at least for me, yeah. I always wanted to play on the biggest stage against the best player in the biggest moment and fucking know exactly how good or bad I was. And I think... Because I was never, you know, like there was no doubt that I was going to lose because I didn't because I'd done the work. Like my my whole deal was I spent the entire yeah. offseason sharpening the blade for those moments. And I always thought that like it, it was always interesting yeah. to me when dudes didn't act like that. I'm like, dude, this is what we get paid to do. And we only get to do it for a short time. So why not give fucking everything for it? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what makes you special. I mean, that's what I did. And I in retrospect, I think I probably. So, you know, I'd play hurt. I'd play, you know, I had a torn MCL. I played like five games with a torn MCL and people are like, man, you look like you're getting old and you're slowing down. And I'm like, you assholes. Like my MCL is completely torn. You know what I'm saying? And so 
Um, obviously like you need to be smart as a player, but yeah, I, I agree. Like that little bit of, um, I'm gonna say fear, you know, like when you got to play against DeMarcus Ware and you got a man reach on him and it's like third and short and like, you got to have it like that, like moment, like that tells you who you are as a person. And like the idea that not many people in society get to feel that physical anxiety of like, is this guy going to kick my ass or not? I think it's something that revealed a tremendous amount of character about not only myself, but the guys yeah. that I played with, you know, and informs informs you about yourself in a way that is very unique to 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 sport, you know. And uh, I think it's probably the same way, like when someone goes under like a heavy max on a back squat, you know, and there's like that little moment of doubt, you know, of like you versus the bar, and uh, and there's something really cool about that, you know. And I uh, yeah, no, smiling just thinking it's, about uh... it. Uh, it, it's funny. It's like we were joking, calling you, you know, uh, uh, Robert Paulson, Logan Paulson, but it's really like, uh, you know, fight club <laughs> has got so many good analogies. It's like after fight club, the volume just gets turned down on everything in life. And, uh, you know, that guy's talking shit to me. Yeah. He doesn't hear him. Yeah. Same thing. You know, it just, it was such yeah. a cool gig. And then all of a sudden you get away from it. And I remember like, uh, when the game ended for me, um, I was still a little pissed because I thought I still had a lot more left in me. And, um, you know, the way I got yeah. hurt was so stupid. I mean, shit, dude, last preseason game, um, you know, I played early. I'm sitting there with my pads off. Some guy gets hurt and I had, and I was the, the new guy, even though I was like fucking same age as these dudes. Yeah. And I had to go back in super cold, took a step and like crunched and a piece of bone came off my kneecap and stuck in the joint. And, uh, I'm like, fuck dude, I yeah. shouldn't even have been in here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so now yeah. all of a sudden I'm kind of pissed and being like, fuck dude, I still felt like I had legitimate, you know, good time ahead of me. And now all of a sudden it just gets fucking ended. And so, uh, I was fucking bitter for Absolutely. still a long time where, you know, and then all of a sudden you make peace with it and you're like, well, shit, dude, like my time has passed. But then you're like, fuck man, I would have loved to have done that a little longer. And then when you talk to dudes and like, well, you know, 10 years is a good career. I'm like, yeah, but it happened like that. And I knew I still had good football left in me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that was the thing that I was like, especially near the end is like, could you put a helmet on now? Like I've gone to practice. I do some coverage for the commanders. Obviously I go to practice and I'm like, you know, I still want that, but I don't know if I could do it still. And like, that is the thing that is, uh, I don't know. It's kind of sad, you know what I mean? To have lost it a little bit, but in the same, in the same thing, like in the same breath, like that's what life is. Right. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a time of seasons. Right. And that is no longer the season. And I'm not like that warrior anymore. I'm something different now. And I get to talk about football. I get to train, I get to do all this different stuff, but it'll never be, it'll never be that. And I think that that's something that makes it valuable. Right. It's like, death makes life valuable. Like the fact that everything ends makes that moment valuable. And I think that that's always good to keep in, keep in perspective. I think. Logan, I, I think it's awesome. You got your CSCS. So when did that love of strength training and seeing it connecting to the field like happen? Cause nobody just goes and gets it. I mean, John always had a connection to the weight room yeah. for his performance, but that wasn't necessarily a step he wanted to take. So what motivated you to continue to learn and develop? Yeah. So I think the thing like near the end of my career, the thing that I really enjoyed about playing uh, was the fact that I got to train was the fact that I got to talk to really smart people about strength and conditioning. And the thing about strength and conditioning that I think really appealed to me is that there's no right answer. Right. And there's always new information kind of uh, to glean about the process, you know, and I had a kind of intervention late in my career with a guy named Brad DeWeese, who's one of the best sprint coaches in the country. And now he's the head of athletic performance for the New York Jets. And one of the things that kind of like opened my perspective on, on life and training was like, 
you know, you're under the barbell a ton. Like I was one of those meathead guys, like grinding the grinding weights, trying to push those numbers. And everyone said, Oh, you know, you hit these metrics two times body weight. That's going to help your sprint performance, yada, 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 all these different conversations. And I had a conversation with Brad. It's like, you know, strength is a skill, right? Speed is a skill. Power development is a skill. And if you never train at those contractile velocities, then what are you doing? Like you're, you're out of practice. And so that whole notion of like, it's not just the weight room, it's, you know, the field, it's running, it's jumping, it's throwing, it's this, the skill development and finding the correct allocation of those different tools to help different levels of athletes. Uh, it was just super interesting to me. And I, you know, one of the things I told myself when I retired is I wanted to keep strength conditioning in my life. Right. And so like afterwards, you know, I thought about becoming a strength coach for the NFL. I had an opportunity. So when I got my CSCS and it just didn't work out from a lifestyle standpoint, but again, like it's something I always want to keep and I do training now, you know, I, I train like high school kids, I train elementary school kids, I train adults, I train NFL athletes. And it's just, it's just fun, like finding ways to help people be better and help people improve themselves. And, and every person is their own unique puzzle. And so I think that's something that I just, again, I just wanted it in my life. I wanted it to be a part of what I'm doing. And, um, and so, yeah, that's why, that's why when I got to CSCS and that's why I continue mm, to train now. Nice, dude. Um, so how did you get, I mean, I, like, I think we had, uh, spoken, like your dad was a NASA engineer and yeah, uh, he was a aerospace engineer. He worked for Rocketdyne, which is like a subcontracting company. They, they make the, the small engines on the back of the airplane okay. portion of the space shuttle. And so obviously that's like a contractor. They ship them over to wherever then NASA is the, is the company or the, the government agency that like launches this so, all that stuff in the space so he, so my he granddad was, a piece of that. Uh, was an engineer for mcdonald douglas and he he ended up um, oh, nice. his deal was uh on the space station he helped design the honeycomb uh structure and oh, ended sick. up figuring out some way with chemicals or something to strengthen the honeycomb structure to make it more rigid i mean not that honeycombs need to be more rigid for for space so that was like what he worked on. And then my uncle ended up uh, developing, I think it was like propulsion or guidance systems for the stealth bomber. And he also worked there. So yeah, as oh, you're nice. saying this, I'm like, yeah, that was, uh, I, it was actually funny. I was telling my kids, um, my daughter's like, I'm not good at math. I'm like, your granddad would have head would have popped off. Cause I remember as a kid, like him coming <laughs> over and helping me with my homework. And then all of a sudden he started like, like just went made like a right turn into like, you know, I don't even know what he was talking about. I mean, so I was like, what is this like calculus and string theory? But, um, he was time yeah, travel. Yeah. yeah, dude, it was way out. But I, as he was, I'm sad he's since passed. Um, it's been, you know, 20 plus years since he's been gone. And now I wish I had known to ask him these questions and I'm like, you know, so it, it's, yeah. neat, but, um, okay. So that gives you your start and you have this background, but, uh, how'd you develop this thing? And more importantly, what was the need that you're trying to fill? Right. So I think, um, you know, in my time in Houston, like basically I was training with some really bright dudes there, you know, like with Olympic lifting backgrounds, powerlifting backgrounds. And, um, you know, I was kind of, I had a lot of free time because I basically, it was a very unique situation. I was basically there. I was being paid full vet minimum, which is like a million one to be like the assistant tight end coach. So like, I wasn't really playing, I'd practice, but like I was there to mentor like two young guys. So I had all this kind of free time. My family was in Virginia. So I was just in the weight room all the time that I wasn't in the meeting room with the football. And so I was talking to those guys a lot. And I basically was like, you know, one of the things that I think is under-trained, we train in this vertical plane a lot, um, is like a horizontal plane, like sport happens in horizontal movement. Obviously there's a vertical force element, 
but like, how do you apply that to like horizontal force vectors? Right. And so I started messing around with the weighted sled and I, I was getting good response from that in terms of kind of not only like running necessarily, but like, um, you know, sports specific activity, like pass blocking, run blocking, you know, deceleration angles into cuts and out of cuts off of weighted sled stuff. So that was really interesting. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to, when I get back to my house, I'm going to buy a weighted sled. I'm going to mess around with this some more. And I just weighted sleds were really expensive. Like they're really loud. Like you have all this extra weight floating around. So I'm like, is there any way to do this and get this done without all this extra material? And so I kind of did some research on it. I bumped into some other products and I started using those and they had like these tremendous heat issues. They had these rope management issues. And I'm like, this is like more of a prototype. It's not actually that far to kind of, you know, make this thing something that a consumer could use on a daily basis. Right. And so I started innovating this thing. I put an insulating cage on it. So basically the idea was that I had now have a device that I could apply in a, not only a vertical plane, but a horizontal plane and get like sprint work, get enough resistance to do heavy kind of isometric and work frontal run plane. game stuff and frontal plane and transverse yeah, plane, correct. because if you know, with the belt, Absolutely. it can rotate. Yeah. So, so it's what I saw it for and what I was pretty pumped on was the idea of being able to do like resisted runs and resisted backpedal. And then more importantly, like, uh, being able to like slide 45 and move. And so when I was watching these young guys, um, yeah. like they were using it as it was intended, but it was really interesting, like watching them come off the ball with the resistance. So it's not like they needed somebody yeah. under pads. So, I mean, as I, as I was looking at it, like yeah. we have um, a building here, like I, I built uh, our facility power athletes on my property. So what we're in here, the podcast rooms, our office, mm -hmm. and then I have a building and then I graded this hill in the back first to run hill sprints. I was thinking like we could put it onto one of the fence posts and actually do resisted uphill running, mm -hmm. you know, and the ability to be able to move through space. So, I mean, now, I mean, and we, we've always struggled with this where like, how do you effectively without somebody with like a, a band or what was that uh, um, thing that Cal Dietz uses? It's like 20 G's, um, the speed. I don't know the name. Oh, the, yeah, the, yeah, ten, yeah, the 1080 sprint. Where like now, I mean, it's like 20 grand. So now you're looking for resistance within like multiple planes of motion. Like I want to be able to move transverse, you know, frontal, yeah. you know, sagittal going backwards, however it is. And as I yeah. saw this, I was like, fuck, dude, this is really smart. And then I, and then I, then when I dug in, I was like, yeah. is, is it like a, a mini flywheel in there? And he's like, no, nah, it's, you know, I think you told me it's more yeah. friction device, but, um, you know, I'm super fascinated yeah. by the idea of like, you know, flywheels and friction and looking for these different type of motors so that we can mimic where, you know, you don't need a partner with a pad. Right. And I think that was the big thing is like, you know, I, I, I developed it for myself and I develop it, you know, like I use it in my, with my clients for like, you know, work capacity and kind of different exercise, you know, stimulation, because you're not always in the way when we go outside, do some stuff. But also like it has like this really nice sports specific application. Like I use it for the DNs. Now all of a sudden I can load the three-step rhythm on a pass rush, right? And we can work on gaining horizontal ground, getting into hip extension, right? And then they're not limited by the sled, like the clunkiness of the chain or the angle of departure, right? They can kind of do whatever they need to do, right? And then like I've got a guy who was really working on his long arm. So we can start with like an isometric long arm into a dynamic movement. You know what I mean? So obviously you're not going to get the same force numbers that you are on like the eccentric impact, but at least you're prepping the tissue with time under tension in sports relevant positions. So again, like it's, it can be very specific, you know, in the case of this defensive end I'm training, who's in the NFL, right. Or a tight end or offensive lineman I'm training, like we, he wants to work weighted pass sets, right. And so we can start with a very slow contractile velocity, right. Make it kind of similar to like a back squat where the force numbers, you know, a thousand newtons right and then we can slowly decrease 
increase that. So the rate of force development increases, the impulse decreases. And all of a sudden, I think that's something that uh, became really exciting for me is just seeing kind of the sports specific application with the technology. And you got to get in the hands sure. of people who can see the big picture. No, I, I mean, that's uh, the um, thing. so what kind of facilitated my retirement? Um, so obviously I had knee surgery and as I was rehabbing my knee, I mean, I was literally sitting on the couch in the CPM. Um, the, I, I got a phone call from, um, this dude who owned this little fitness company that asked me to come work for him, which was CrossFit, Greg, Greg Glassman. And, uh, oh, you know, yeah. and he pitched me on coming out and helping them develop their tech on how to train athletes and kind of do this sports specific version of CrossFit. And it was super interesting, not mm. from his pitch as much, but more because of the of volume of people that were that excited about CrossFit. And I really hadn't run into what I considered like civilians because, I mean, I trained at athletes performance. You got to train in environments with other professional athletes. So I just hadn't had much experience in terms of like, yeah. I, I just thought normal people did like <clears throat> yoga, fucking ran marathons and fucked around at the gym and never got strong. <laughs> so it was really fascinating. If there was this like huge market of people that was fucking trying to kill themselves and, you know, trying to maximize human performance. Um, it was a little random and misguided by my point of view, but I realized that like, if you could take that enthusiasm mm -hmm. and just kind of funnel it into a, into a, in, into a smaller kind of age or, uh, you know, fucking, you know, I always thought about it like, uh, somebody making a cake, like squeezing them through and the batter coming out or the, the frosting, <laughs> um, we could effectively like weaponize them and make them badasses. And so one mm -hmm. of the things that we ended up doing right. when we launched CrossFit football, we had a website, we had to go teach seminars and I was super fortunate to go teach and Chris as well. Mm. And our other team, hundreds of these things around the globe for almost nine years. And it was pretty interesting. Um, like one was teaching sprint mechanics and the way we taught sprint mechanics was doing resisted runs with bands. And so the reason being was that they had been yeah. doing so much pose that they were used to just like picking their foot up off the ground and using for gravity. But well, it's, it's not just that to add on. So we chunked it out, essentially posture. Yeah. So speed is a product of posture. We, for the first time, taught them trunk tr exercises, isometric. Yeah, so so there there'd always been this idea that you can't teach speed in the weight room, which I disagree because it's just a function of posture. The person that can maintain posture in a loaded position longer can generate more force. And, and so so if, if you can maintain right. trunk stability and more, hold on, Chris, I yeah, know I he's know. getting excited. Uh, if you can challenge posture and position through those different planes of motion, which in sprinting, you know, you can take somebody out and get them to sprint faster. Sorry. Yeah. And then positioning because they were not used to sprinting technique, right? So showing them, you know, face, cheek, butt, cheek, cheek to cheek, knee up, toe up, simple uh, positions thrown out there. And then the opportunity to pattern them. So this is why I like this piece versus the sled because it's the opportunity to yeah. work arms and legs together. So yeah. we utilize the band because every CrossFit yeah. gym had those Yeah, so with so, this opportunity. To yeah, them together. we would show up and do band resisted runs with them to try to get them into a good leaning position. And then what's also interesting is unless you put your foot violently in the ground and try to rip the ground out from underneath you, you can't move the band. So we would have these post runners that would like, we just hold the band uh, and we would just do this fucking like a tiny thing. And they yeah, didn't understand yeah. arm drive and leg. Yeah. So the only problem was, was that the band has this like elastic stored energy where all of a sudden now they're like not only uh, putting themselves in a position where we're increasing their lean, um, you know, they're putting their foot in the ground, they're being violent. But the problem is, like you said, their tissues weren't prepared. They hadn't been sprinting and they hadn't been doing this form of training. I mean, we had uh, Grant Winstrom come mm -hmm. to a seminar and he and his crew who were, you know, ex-NFL mm -hmm. dudes all fucking slated because they understood how to, you know, dive and drive and sprint yeah. and their tissues were ready and everything. We had mm -hmm. other people come in. Oh, yeah, I can do this. Yeah. And then blow Achilles, blow hamstrings, blow their backs out a because lot. they had yeah. never used like the stored energy in the eccentric load. I mean, it was just a recipe for fucking carnage. 
uh, for most athletes that were coming yeah. from this kind of like general work capacity, uh, you know, mediocrity is kind of like our fucking what we're shooting for to be averagely good at everything. And um, it was yeah. fucking literally carnage to the point where you just had to remove it. Um, because dude, like you go to a seminar, yeah. you pay you seven ninety five travels and you fucking blow their Achilles. Like it rolls up like a Venetian blind. It's a bad deal. So when I saw, so yeah. when I saw your force well, engine like, instantly, I thought was like, man, I wish we had fucking 10 of these for a seminar to effectively be able to hold the core, yeah. hold them into position, let them go and actually use the, the friction as their own kind of guide into it. But being able to hold it, get them into a lean position, have them high knee and then drag against it and let them feel the resistance. And like, that's when I saw it and I was like, Jesus, if we had just had these, they would have been, I mean, and they're not big. I mean, they're small like this. It would have been easy to bring 10 of them with us. And we fucking, I guarantee we could have sold every one of them while we were there. I will say, yeah, like that's, I mean, that's what I think the advantage of the product is obviously, but you know, when you're coaching sprinting, one of the things that I find is that like everyone thinks, um, you know, everyone's like, oh yeah, you know, like I can sprint, right? Like they don't treat it with like the correct level of respect in my opinion. It's like, would you go into a gym cold after two years off and try to max back squat? If you do, you're probably a dumbass, right? So like, um, you know, I think like that's what you need to think about when you, if you are trying to get back into sprinting, there needs to be a progression. You know what I mean? Like you mentioned all the different variables that go into there, but there's also like contractile velocity. That's a big one that people don't know. And then the elastic element of all your tendons, right? You got to coach that position up, right? So one of the things that I found, and this is maybe something you can incorporate, or you probably haven't incorporated because you're all smart guys. It's just start. If you have, if you haven't got back into sprinting, you're trying to get back into sprinting, start with like weighted marches, weighted marches, higher resistance, slower contractile velocity, right? Cause it's a little less demanding on the tendons, right? And you're actually recruiting more muscle patterning in the correct pattern, right? And as you get better, obviously the load comes down, right? And then the, um, then the velocity increases, the stored elastic energy also increases in the tendons and you've built up this accommodation for it, right? So it's not like I can just go max back squat, right? I got to like build up to that. And it takes time to create that, that tissue adaptation. So I think people need to have that in their mind. And like, if you don't jump if you don't run, if you don't throw and you're not working at the, you know, the lower end of that force velocity spectrum, like it's, it's kind of hubris to think that you're okay to just pop in there and yeah. just make it happen. Dude, I we've think, been, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, no, dude, I mean, uh, we could not be in any bigger agreement. And the reason I get excited was this is what <laughs> the entire seminar was about was to bring people in and be like, Hey, uh -oh. if you want to implement a strength conditioning template or even a program in your gym, or you want to begin to train like a power athlete, you know, this was yeah. kind of the, you know, like oh, this right. is yeah. what's required of you. And what was really cool about the seminar is people saw how far, I mean, you know, I always hope that like, uh, you know, it's yeah. not a bridge too far. It was a fucking, uh, ravine. It was the grand Canyon for people to say like, holy shit, yeah. man, I didn't realize now a large number of people realized how deficient they were in terms of like athleticism. And that's why, you know, power at they just really gone. And this idea of fostering, developing athleticism came from these individuals but it was really that like their training was just subpar if this is how they wanted to use it. And I remember telling them, like, if your goal is just to be fit and look good with your shirt off, like a little caloric restriction and a bunch of, uh, you know, aerobic capacity with a little bit of strength work, it's going to get you there. If you're trying to basically weaponize yourself yeah. in such a way in, you know, to get into this plane, like this is the progression in this uh, seminar is a good indication of where you are. And then we offer training and, you know, now yeah. that's what we do. But one of the biggest things we ran into was um and we've always run into this is people one don't know how to sprint and they don't have the strength that it takes for them to actually safely sprint 
because I mean, you know, I mean, all the research shows that the person that carries the most muscle in the Olympics ends up being the, you know, by far the fastest sprinter. I mean, you need a high level of strength and muscle to be able to absorb that. And, um, you know, we ended up finding tricks like, mm -hmm. uh, one of the ones that we use constantly, which actually gets, you know, solves a ton of problems. is just uphill running. So hill sprints, because one, I've yeah. never seen anybody run uphill poorly, so they can all lean. Um, you know, and if all of a sudden something yeah. gets funky, all of a sudden they can slow down arm swing and we watched it and it's actually, uh, especially hill sprinting on dirt or grass becomes like, if you can't sprint, yeah. where do I start? I tell people, man, find like a, anywhere from, you know, three to seven degrees. You know, I think we're a little bit more, I think we're like, we go from like a three to a seven when I graded it and, you know, start there and you have to build a general level of preparedness and conditioning to get your body in a position to yeah. sprint and there's plyometrics and there's a whole process for this. But, uh, yeah. it was just, the seminar was just such a good eye opening experience for people, but the carnage that it caused forced us to like fucking shear stuff <laughs> out because we just, I, I get tired of fucking getting people ice. Right. But it was almost necessary because then now we're in a position to better understand and then how to coach coaches to yeah. do this in their gyms. So we but, made these mistakes for other people. But we still people. struggle with edu I mean, we still struggle in that terms of educating people, like to effectively take them on the journey of sprinting. And I mean, because sprinting takes a high degree. And even though it's so primal in so many ways, it takes a high level of proficiency. And what I liked about his engine was like, so, I mean, the, the other thing too, with sprinting, like we've been using true forms, uh, which I think are fucking phenomenal. Oh yeah. And, and then mm -hmm. also the uh, trampoline sprints. So that we can coach technique while they're moving. What I liked about this is yeah. as these guys were moving, I was walking next to them and I was like, you know, you know, maintain your base here. And so it almost slowed them down in such a way with yeah. the resistance. Yeah. And Logan, you wrote an awesome article that you sent me on Simply Faster that highlights the the practicality of this tool. So the, let's let's cover some practical yeah. solutions. So you identified problems, uh, one of which I want to lead off with was the athlete is spending too much time on the ground, that long amateurization phase. So speak to how this can help yeah. target that problem, but still, you know, their their posture, position, patterning is all online. Yeah. So I think the thing that I noticed with myself was just like, you know, there's there's many ways to attack this problem. There's many ways to like verbally cue an athlete. But the thing that I always found, like I said, I, I, I was blessed to work with some of the best sprint coaches in the world. Like I'm not a fast guy. I think I ran like a 485, but I was always hunting speed. And so a coach will give you a cue and you're like, Okay, like I mean, try to do that. Like that's not quite right. And so what I found with this machine is that I could turn the resistance up for myself or for an athlete that I'm coaching and be like, so for example, I coach two offensive linemen. One of them is in the NFL, and when they run, they always are kind of hip cocked down. You know what I mean? There's like a like a pelvic tilt to them, and they're not getting the hip extension. But you put the belt on them, and these are big men now. You know, this guy that I'm training is 330 pounds, and he's six six. So no amount of weight on a sled, it's going to be really hard for him to feel that, to kinesthetically interpret that resistance. So with this device, because I can go from an ounce of resistance up to a thousand pounds, I can turn that up as much as he needs so that he has to recruit those glutes and get to hip extension. And so then when we do a couple sprints like that, which are very heavy, they're like, for him, they're like um, about 70% of his body weight, which is crazy to think about. Like, that's not something you would do normally with sprinting, right? But he's such a big, powerful man. He needs that extra stimulus to get there. And then we then we'll we'll take him off there. And then like following kind of Varishansi's model, right? Of sports specific strength, like you've slowed the contractile velocity down. Now you need to do a couple free and watching him being able to internalize that resistance and say, hey, like Mo, remember that feeling that you had. Remember that hip extension that you had. Now let's apply it here and watch the difference in stride length, 
what's the difference in posture just from adding a little bit of resistance. And in this case, it's not a little bit of resistance, but like, that's just a simple example, right? You mentioned the amortization phase which was something that I struggled with tremendously. And so I, people are like, oh, just be more reactive off the ground. And I could never get it. So I just put the belt on one day and I was like, I'm going to do pogo hops, weighted pogos. And I would do weighted pogos. And it showed me how tight my calf, how tight my ankle needed to be to react forcefully off the ground. And so then when I go and I do pogos unloaded and I go into my sprint work, I'm like, oh, like I was, I was bullshitting that my, for 15 years of my life. And so again, it's just a nice tactile cue that gives you some feedback that says, okay, this is the, this is the level of tension. This is the level of force. This is the level of intent that I need to execute this activity at a high level. So I think it's so excellent what we ended for that up kind using, of thing. Um, to teach that same thing, because uh, that anterior pelvic tilt, which we call CrossFit girl butt, where people get overextended, a lot of times the guys <laughs> are so weak in their trunk. So what happens is they get in this overextended yeah. position. So we started hooking um, like a, we have a, um, like a, a West Side belt squat. And uh, we would put the belt around, put oh, a yeah. ton of weight on, and then get them to stand up and squeeze their glutes, and then basically hold a med ball against yeah. the chest and march. And that actually taught the position, you know, because they were so overextended, you can't because it actually pulls your hips into a neutral position. And my cue has always been like, pull your top ab down. And, um, you know, and uh, so yep. like I had some real world class sprint coaches, not only in college, but in the NFL. So, I mean, there was a reason that I was fast because we worked on it. And uh, uh, like all these mechanics yep. stuff, as you're talking about, we're kind of second nature because we I was able to translate what we did in the training. Yeah. So it's always interesting. Like I went out and worked with the guys from Baylor when I was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, like four or five years ago when Kaz was there. And every one of those dudes were so uh, externally rotated that we ended up putting them on pit sharks and teaching them. And they all asked me, hey, uh, you know, like, you know, why did you do this? I'm like, because every guy that I've seen that stands in that in, uh, externally rotated overextended position, what happens is, is when they pass set. And then they transverse plane and they load, uh, especially on like a pass rush and they get loaded from the side, they always end up fucking injuring their back. And I saw this mechanism happen over and yeah. over again to the point where everything we did within the trunk was pull the top ab down and then fo focus on rotation with med balls so we could get a reactive deal. And yeah. uh, I'm sure you've seen this. Like I saw the same injury mechanism happen over and over and over to the point where I'd see a dude overextended. I'd see him get in that position. I'd be like, oh, he's fucking hurt his back. And sure enough, it was like a one-to-one. It was like yeah. uh, ACL tears. A um, uh, guy would take a big shot yeah. to the head. All of a sudden, like the next, either mm -hmm. later that day or a few days later, all of a sudden he tears ACL on the other side. And it was always like, yeah. Appropriate and, uh, we, we had a dude on the podcast that. Um, Dr. Dustin Grooms. Yeah, who was talking about it. And I told him, I was like, dude, I observed this in the NFL to a dude where like would tear his ACL or take a big hit. I'd be like, yo, man, like something's fucked up, dude. And, uh, you know, I don't like to foreshadow injuries for people, but I'd see a dude tear his ACL. I'm like, didn't that dude take a big hit on the other side? And they'd be like, yeah, he did. It, it like night and day. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, this is where, yeah. you know, you start saying this thing to the ATCs and the trainers and all of a sudden they get fucking real mad at you. And I'm like, Hey man, like you guys can either pretend this shit doesn't exist and just do ice and stem and some fucking iontosphoresis, or you can actually fix this shit and prevent people from fucking blowing shit out. Yeah. But yeah. No, man. I, Absolutely. I, dude, I saw, yeah, I like just in the time I was fucking with it and saw what those guys using it, I was like, man, there's so many applications. And that's why when I came home, I got excited and reached out to you because I'm like, dude, if, if somebody creates something that's innovative that I can see the like the endless applications, man, I want to know about it. And more importantly, I like to you know make, make more people available yeah. to it. I think that's one of the things that I'm having a hard time with at the moment, just to be perfectly candid, is there's so much to do with it, right? Like I use it for like general pop, you know, we do like 
conditioning classes with it. We do rows for time. We do presses for time. And it feels like a CrossFit class. You get three or four people on it. It's like a barbell rack, right? Or we can do hardcore, you know, power development stuff. We can hardcore, uh, hardcore sprint training. We can do athletic specific, uh, specific stuff. So understanding kind of how to communicate to those different groups and, uh, you know, has been a big issue in terms of getting the content up. You know what I'm saying? And saying like, oh, this is a workout you can do, or this is how I use it with my alignment or whatever it is. You know what I mean? It's just like teaching people the product has been interesting. So it's nice when you meet people who have a vision for how it applies oh. already. You know what I mean? And that's like, that feels yeah, like your job. You know? I do want to cover these, these next two points that you talked about in the article. <laughs> and then I want to get into yep. John GPP, GSP mm. and SPP. So just hold on, John. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lots of acronyms. Sir. I know John, John loves this stuff. So the second thing, and I thought this was cool, uh, driving force into the ground. So I work with high school athletes, and this is yeah. a primary focus during our, our pre-practice warm-up because that's my strength and conditioning time. But now you've highlighted imparting enough force effectively even to the ground at top-end mechanics. Now, not a lot of athletes, Correct. especially at the lower levels, ever reach top-end mechanics. So speak to understanding. Correct what happens with your body at top end mechanics and then now how can they focus on that with this tool well obviously like there's a lot going on at top end mechanics and to me that's like the coolest thing you can do physically you know because you're at you're operating at such high force like like ground contact forces and you're working at such a high contractile velocity and basically using every muscle in your body to kind of maintain posture and kind of get your get yourself moving forward the problem is like it's tough to do. Right. So people, like you said, they don't do it very often. And they're like, why am I not fast? Why can I not get there? And one of the things that I, I found for myself is just like at top end mechanics, I have no idea how my body should be oriented. Right. And so coaches would tell me like, drive your knees up, push harder in the ground. And again, like I just didn't have the kinesthetic awareness to get that done. There are guys like that I've played with and that I've worked with like Julio Jones, for example, like you'd give that guy one athletic coaching cue and it like happens immediately. Cause he's just so aware of how to apply force with his body. So for me, what I did is I just said, let me try doing some weighted running A's here. And people who aren't familiar with running A's, it's essentially high knees, but like with a cyclical heel action. So you're coaching the correct pattern, but I always found that my posture was somewhat lacking. So the second that I added a little bit of resistance around the hips, I forced myself in a hip extension. And then I had to kind of forcefully apply uh, uh, ground force with my, with my feet and keep my ankles nice and tight while applying that cyclical heel action. And I could stay in that position for very long durations of time and really work on my mechanics, really work on my head posture. And I found that the transferability was outstanding. And it's, you know, we mentioned injuries associated with sprinting. This is something that is relatively low risk in terms of stress on the hamstring, because if the athlete's not putting their foot directly down under their hip, like they should be at the top end mechanics, then there's no harm, no foul. Right. And it's a good opportunity, good space for them to learn. And the other way, in terms of applying max force while increasing the ground, talk, ground, ground contact time, excuse me, is to do like um, like bounds with them, essentially. And everyone's familiar with bounds. And I find this has been a very effective tool to get kids to kind of just know how hard I need to push, how hard I need to push, and how rhythmic it needs to be. And again, it takes time to learn in the same way that you would teach like a power clean. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's just been a really nice tool to kind of get to speak and communicate to different athletes. And I think that's really what it's giving you. It's a tool that allows you to communicate your coaching cue more effectively to people who maybe aren't as intrinsically aware of their body. And so to me, that's been a really nice, again, a nice feature of the, of the tool. And again, I, it, it is a tool. It's not the end all be all, but it's a tool to kind of help with those, those people that maybe aren't 
they, they can't handle the auditory cue or you're not getting what you want out of the athlete. So again, that's my perspective. No, on I mean, um, man, we, we found like just some really interesting reactive stuff. Like when we, uh, transition, start teaching people sprint mechanics off of just a cheap $50 mini trampoline where all of a sudden now yeah. the reactive force was forcing them into high knees. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean the, the greatest cheat for sprinting is just like, you know, um, you know, I need you to get a lean and, and do your best Roger Craig imitation you know, big arm swing. And the problem is most people don't know who yeah. Roger Craig is, but you know, you know, cause you laughed, but like, you know, that yeah. was one of the greatest uh, analogies I ever heard for a sprint coach. Like, man, I want you to get up tall and fall, get a nice lean and do your best Roger Craig with yeah. a big arm swing. Yeah. And uh, that yeah. fixed 99% of it. Cause you know, everybody had seen him sprint. <laughs> and then when we started yeah. doing a bunch of un- uphill sprinting after we saw, you know, all that, um, uh, who was it? Uh, um, Lawrence Taylor, or no, um, uh, Walter yeah. Payton, and, uh, Jerry and, Rice, and also Jerry, yeah, Jerry, Jerry Rice. They had that hill at the 49ers. So we went down there yeah. for training camp or for a practice when we played. And, um, dude, we got to see that hill. And, like, that at that point, I was like, oh, this makes so much more sense. Like, we were running <laughs> too big a hill. Like, like the, you know, right. and it's, um, you know, coaching young athletes and just athletes in general, like, you never know what's going to be the thing that clicks. And we saw this with yeah. like, you know, a ton of people coaching, you know, like we would just start and people would be like, you know, you guys, uh, you know, how were you able to get that? I'm like, uh, cause I got 50 cues that I'm just going to run through yeah. until one of them sinks and it might be auditory. It might be physical. I might put my hands on you, try to do this. I mean, we have got to the point where yeah. we can fix people really quick. Cause when you've seen thousands of people do the same things over and over again, poorly, you start developing this, but within the, you know, you're right. teaching sprint mechanics, like. I think uh, the tactile feedback of having some resistance in that um, becomes, you know, I mean, that should be everybody's cue. And then maybe just some other things like big arms, high knees, you know, don't, you know, yeah. no horizon changes. I mean, all this, the standard yeah. sprint cues become much more, uh, you know, meaningful and actionable. Well, when they're paired with yeah. movement solutions like this, you are moving and you can't help but feel this versus our words as coaches. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the other thing. And like, I had this really weird, like, I, I just one day I was working with this kid and he could not get like he like I'd load him on the sprint, right? And his mechanics were pretty good. And then we'd go to like free running. And he just looked terrible. And I was like, I just can't get it. So one day I had him do the weighted sprint, like right into a set of wickets, which doesn't seem like it would correlate because the body position is so different. But for this kid, and a lot of my kids afterwards, like just doing the weighted sprint, shows them how to push to the ground with rigid, rigid body position and getting them in the wickets just shows them how to turn over while applying that force. And it was, it's not a one-to-one thing, but again, like the running mechanics cleared up almost instantly. And again, like you would never do that with an elite sprinter because it's too, it's too Mm -hmm. mixed, but for this kind of general prep athlete, like those solutions are viable because you're getting productive responses out of it. Right. So just because it doesn't apply to like maybe the best sprinter in the world doesn't mean it, it shouldn't apply to like your 10 year old kid. I mean, you know, I, I watch videos with uh, Tyson Gay and some of the elite sprinters that are like, you know what? I mean, their depth on the squat was only four inches. So they, they would set the bar at four inches from lockout and then go down and they, cause they were just trying yeah. to work on violent hip extension, which like at the end of the day, there's other ways to get violent hip extension than a barbell back squat for what they were using. I mean, you can do dynamic pulls. I mean, there's, uh, there's other ways. Yeah, one note to add on is, and I got this from Franz Bosch. I always got to give him credit because no yeah. one else on the internet does. Uh, awesome <laughs> sprint coach. Dude, people do rip off a lot of Franz Bosch. Real creative. Dude, Logan should check him out. I'll, I'll send yeah. you some links to his stuff yeah, after this. It. But uh, where we, I mentioned earlier, where we identify posture, position, and patterning for sprinting, but then just the, the realization reading, 
okay, well, now I'm dribbling in a basketball. I have a football in my hand. I have a lacrosse stick. So this picture-perfect thing that we are teaching within sprinting, I now have to give my tactical athletes a gun and 50 pounds of gear. So there was this fourth layer that Bosch talks about, it's simply called style. Yeah. And his perception would be to the to the the, the Usain Bolts, the Tyson Gaze, the sprinter. But then in my mind, who I am coaching is lacrosse players and then tactical athletes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if we can drive and teach this force driving into the ground and utilizing our arms to get them to learn how to drive force into the ground, well, now I give them a football. It's going to change my yeah. running mechanics, but what's my expectation of execution as a coach? Yeah. Dorsiflexion drive, force into the ground at top end speed. So this style perception, uh, I wrote an article on it a while back, but it just was a light bulb moment, maybe misinterpreting Bosch like everyone else on the internet. But the idea, we're using all these tools to teach force into the ground and then hand them their sports specific tool. Well, there's there's also this huge play right now and everybody's trying to increase, you know, and, um, you know, it's a supple leopard, you know, uh, you know, I know this isn't Kelly Sturrett's fault because I know his, you know, there's a lot of last in, lost in translation, but there's this idea of like suppleness and flexibility. The one thing you need for speed is you need basically to Stiffness. be rigid. Which, yeah, stiff. And, yeah, that's you, know, you need stiff, you need to be rigid. And so that's another issue we've been running into that everybody is focusing on this mobility to the point where they've just lost a lot of fucking rigid, you know, whether it be stored yeah. elasticity. And so that's another thing we issue. The other one, um, I don't know if you've ever come across um, the uh, RPR um, JL, uh, Holdsworth and Cal Dietz, uh, reflexive performance reset. Yeah. So it's, uh, oh. basically the idea that, uh, dysfunction stored in the fascia and they have a set oh, of yeah, kind of like movements within circles and whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, Cal and JL are a buddy of ours. So, uh, they were, they kept talking about it and they actually came and did a seminar for us. So I got a chance to see it up close. Uh, it's, I'm telling you for your athletes where all of a sudden there's things they can't do. It yeah. might be some dysfunction to the point where, like, um, I remember we were testing broad jumps, and you remember I couldn't land without with my feet wide. I don't know if you remember this, um, and it was because uh, I didn't have the adductor strength. And so oh. Cal ended up doing um, real small grind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I blow out pants from these huge adductors. Um, uh, so Cal ended up doing it, went back and tested, and I landed fine. And he's like, dude, your adductors, had, or, you know, your groin, your adductor had shut off. So what happened was your body was bringing feet together to maintain stability and was employing your glutes instead of what it should have been doing. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, whereas before I got stuck in this mindset of like, well, people can't do this because they're not trained. And then, I, yeah. but then you have to remember some people just have a ton of mileage. And so being able to just do those, what they call the wake up drills, and I do them every morning. Uh, I don't do them every night before I go to bed, but I do them on my kids. Yeah. Um, and they only take like three or four minutes or even easier now that they, uh, we figured out how to use like a, um, uh, what is it like a Theragun for it? Yeah. But it's basically just a pattern of like circles, uh, like, you know, there's different points and you kind of go through, it takes three or four minutes. It might yeah. be something to incorporate, especially with your younger athletes. Um, whereas, you know, you see, Hey, this kid can't do this and you're finding all these different things. Maybe it's just dysfunction. We could solve it just doing some wake up jobs. And I think, you know, the wake up drill is an interesting idea because, you know, part of the reason I'm doing a lot of my exercise selection is to help the kid draw awareness intuitively to the muscles that are maybe not firing correctly. I don't really like that term because they are working. They're just not patterning in the way that you want them to for the activity. Right. So, again, like a lot of there's a reason for that. 
So yeah. what what happens is, is there's a firing order when things happen. And what happens is, is and this is based on Dr. Bueller. I don't know if you ever come across Craig Bueller, no, no. AMIT, mm-hmm. Activated Muscle Integration Technique. He's actually working with, uh, he called me the other day, he's working with Odell Beckham. Um, mm. to fix, allowed to say that? For the uh, knee? Yeah, for his knee. Well, we're saying it now. Um, <laughs> so he hit me up on a bunch of stuff. But uh, um, so the idea is that, you know, there's kind of a patterning. And so his contention is that the world's best athletes are the world's best athletes because they can compensate around injury better than sure. other people. So what he calls it is a uh, intellect or a, a physical uh, muscular IQ. So, he, mm-hmm. you know, you can take a world-class athlete, give him one injury and all the, or a bunch of injuries, and he still plays at a high level until, you know, the straw breaks the camel's back. Yeah. But whereas, you know, uh, a lesser athlete will not be able to problem solve around it. So his contention is that like the muscles fire in a different, in a similar pattern. And when something gets injured and and doesn't fire properly, now all of a sudden these other muscles kind of take load. Like for example, uh, you know, somebody ruptures their patellar tendon and they're like, oh, why did that rupture? Well, your quad wasn't firing so that when you went to eccentrically load, the muscles weren't absorbing the force and went right down to the tendon and now you get a rupture. And like, that's a classic example of one. I mean, this is where tendon ruptures happen. It's because the muscles don't fire to absorb force like they should, and then has to go downstream into tendons and ligaments. Sure, but in the same breath, I also think I don't disagree with what he's saying, but I also think that like there is a skill associated with that activity. You know, like any everyone says, "Oh, skill!" Like you're bending your knee in an eccentric manner, but like in a sport specific setting, let's say you're running a route and we're decelling into the route, like you have to train your body in that same joint angle under that same kind of situation, right, to accommodate that load, right? So everyone says, "Oh, I'm going to do flywheel. I'm going to do." box jumps, some do depth jumps, but the force vector is different, right? It's, it's different for your body in that deceleration mechanic. So I also think that like, you know, strength is a skill, right? Strength is a skill, strength is a skill, strength is a skill, right? And so you have to make sure you're taking your, like, like you're talking about your firing pattern and making sure it applies to what you need it to apply to. And so I do so think wait, strength ahead. isn't just a skill or what we've been saying for years is that the skill is really to display your strength dynamically, which sure. you know is power. So, I mean, uh, I saw a lot of strong fucking dudes that couldn't play because there was no way for them to actually translate that into, into, you know, being powerful individuals. I mean, I watched a dude bench 600 pounds for reps and he couldn't fucking knock anybody over. So I would argue that that gentleman, right, is if we look about the force velocity curve, it really does well on the far left of that spectrum, right? Where you got your bench press, your deadlift, your isometric activity, right? There is a spectrum between that and you're sprinting, you're throwing, you're jumping, all that stuff down here. And in order to get that strength to apply to this activity, you need to increase the rate coding of the athlete at the sport specific velocity by incorporating more throwing, more jumping, more running into that athlete's training, right? So in that in that sense, it is a skill. He just chose to apply his skill. Like I think I heard you say this once and I thought, I think you got it from Louis Simmons, like strong people want to be strong fast people want to be fast or some variation of that. And that to me is exactly right. Like he was, he was in the lane he wanted to be in, right? Like I always wanted to lift weights, but the thing that the dosing that was, that would have helped me more athletically personally is operating more in this other vector of the force velocity curve, right? Med ball throws, weighted starts, sled sprints, all that kind of dynamic activity, which again is a skill that my body needed to learn to, to make sure that the rate coding accommodated the stuff I was doing on the field. And I think that's where, when I say strength is a skill, like he was very skillful in one element of that, but his, mm-hmm. he needed to make sure that transmuted or applied to the activity on the field. And how do you bridge that? Some athletes have a very high transmutation ability. Like I go back to Julio Jones, he would do chain box squats all the time and then be able to jump 43 inches. Like 
there was no, like he didn't need to jump or do any kind of plyometric work. It just happened. But for me, I needed to make sure that I cultivated that contractile velocity in a different way than him. And there are athletes like that. And so finding that solution, I think is really unique. Yeah. Well, I, yes, uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the one thing that I observed, and this was kind of the splinter in my mind was how so few people were able to translate what they were doing in the weight room onto the field. Yeah. And there was always this deal. And I was like, yeah, but how are you effectively doing this stuff on the field and how much preparation time? Like my whole deal was like, yeah, I mean, I love to train. Don't get me wrong. And I enjoy the weight room as much as ever, anybody. But if I couldn't take what I was using in the weight room and using the meaningful way to, to fuck people up on the field, it would just didn't fit within what I needed it to do. And, uh, yeah. you know, that was like either with, uh, you know, conditioning or the med ball or the sprint or any of the stuff that we did within the training modality, it had to translate. And if yeah. it didn't, we just figured it out. And like, at the end of the day, nobody ever asked me what I benched when I walked out to the field, nobody ever right. asked me, but I'll tell you, they knew that they didn't want to get punched by me. Yeah. And, you know, and that, and that came from, you know, hand speed velocity, whether that be speed bag, all the other stuff we did. Yeah. But there was this idea of like, this is the foundation which you create. I have to find interesting ways to translate and to use this in a meaningful way so that I can put it onto the field and use it there to be, you know, to be able to fucking kill people. Right. And I and, think that's uh, something, sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, no. And so whereas I saw a lot of people not go, you know, A, B, C, they just were like, I did all this room or I did all this work <laughs> in the weight room. Why aren't I better on the field? And I was yeah, like, yeah, right. but, but you never like, and then even down to joint angle, right? Like I figured out yeah. pretty early. That if my big toe was in the ground and my knee tracked over my insteps, I was dramatically stronger than if I yep. rotated my foot out here and now all of a sudden opened this. I could basically get to this position to use my glute. But sure. now all of a sudden you're in this position. So, I mean, just in terms of offensive line play, I saw yep. guys in terrible positions. The problem is they were so big and they lacked the flexibility and not necessarily flexibility in the way I look at it. Or, I mean, the, you know, everybody thinks passive range of motion. I think about active range of motion flexibility. Can yes. I be flexible? When, you know, fucking things are turned up to 10 and I need to be violent. Everybody yep. does this kind of passive range of motion. And like, that's why I was like lifting weights. It looked like stretching with heavy weight was under sure. active range of motion. So when I see a lot of offensive line guys, they would play real duck footed and opened because they weren't flexible enough in those positions. And then they just end up having to be 350, 360 pounds to make up for shitty technique. Right. Whereas like I looked at it like, dude, I want to be. Uh, as strong as I can, as lean as I can, and put myself in the best flexibility or position to be as lethal as possible. Yeah, I think that's the, uh, you said something there that I think is really awesome. And one of the things is that, like, I look at MMA or boxers and look at how much actual weightlifting they do. Like, they do weightlifting to kind of build the horsepower of their engine, but then they do a lot of other special strength exercises or what I would categorize as special strength exercises in order to make sure that they can accommodate the positions, they can accommodate the velocity, they can accommodate the tactical element of the sport, right? They don't, you know, they, they go through different gradations, right? They hit the heavy bag, right? They grapple, they do all these different things, right? To make sure that technically and positionally they can accommodate the stuff that they're going to be doing in the cage, right? And for football players, I think we have this this, this notion of like weight room is a direct one-to-one -one transfer. To me, the bridge that is missing is the football specific training, the special strength exercises that take the athlete from the weight room to the field, which is one of the reasons that I like the strength engineer. I like extensive sled work for offensive linemen, because now you can effectively load the positions that we've just discussed, right? Like getting that internal rotation of the hip in a pass set under load and having to push forcefully from that position at different contractile velocities along the spectrum to get the athlete to the field in a strong athletic 
comfortable, neurologically capable position. And I think that's to me is exactly what you're saying, but I think it's like football should take a book out of fighters, a page out of fighters book, right? Cause it's not just lift weights, be a better fighter. It's lift weights, learn how to throw a punch, learn how to accommodate position. And now we're going to go fight. All right. Which this is actually where my background is. All right. Into what I was referencing earlier, GPP. Consider this a lot of the exercises that you would do in uh, using the tool for the boot camp and the, the, the group setting. But then yeah. we have the idea, and, and GPP stands for General Physical Preparedness, yeah, for sure. anyone listening out there. And then we have SBP, Specific Physical Preparedness, which would be like the, the sports practice and everything you did at the OTAs and preparing for the game, not including the game. And then the, this concept, going back to the old CrossFit football seminar days, general specific preparedness and the key here as john mentioned where you would set up hey work with me no 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 i'm just laughing because uh this was actually crafted on a plane as i was trying to figure out how to explain like sports specific training that fits within like that doesn't involve a ball like which was our mm. like pre-practice stuff yeah yeah, yeah. which a young bright-eyed bushy-tailed chris mccoken was sitting in the audience in uh december 2009 so the idea, general specific preparedness, this is the principle of specificity, where mm-hmm. it's not just squatting to get strong. We don't care what you do. We care how you do it. So John mentioned he was most powerful with his toes forward, knee over the arch of the instep, driving that big toe into the ground. So now we're aiming to teach our athletes to set up in the squat, universal athletic position, toes forward, knees over the arch of the instep. Then we can utilize another exercise, the lunge, for teaching them to trust their hips to move forward and not overreach with their foot, like mm-hmm. poor sprinting technique that we were talking sure. about earlier. And then awesome mechanics, coaching sprint technique with the step up onto a box where their knee is below their hip crease, like good mm-hmm. uh, top sprint technique, and then pulling through. So driving through, and then they finish, knee up, toe up, not overextending the foot way out in front of the knee. So again, coaching within a window. And then returning down to the ground with their foot underneath their hip. Um, so all these different things where we would coach at full speed. Now we're utilizing the barbell or resistance training to teach what we know to be optimal positions, force reduction on the field, and then aimed increase the amount of force they can produce in these optimal force reduction positions. So where it's not just the weight room, yeah, go lift and we'll carry over. No, it's how you do it. So aiming to teach our coaches to then teach their athletes to do this and then, I mean, set up and set them free. This is where we hand them off to sport coaches that are unintelligent. And guess what they do? Fuck it all up. <laughs> Unless you get guys like me that are both. Uh, but the, the other one that, that he, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll get to, um, uh, obviously, Fred Hatfield's compensatory acceleration. Yes. So um, mechanical advantage increases, so does speed. So I was very fortunate that the old power lifter that trained me when I was 14, 15, 16 through 18, like all through high school, was buddy of Fred Hatfield's. Mm. And he talked about compensatory acceleration. So everything we did was violent in nature. So as mechanical advantage increases, so does bar speed. So his thing was like, John, I want you to try to break the fucking weights. When you're mm. coming up, I want you to snap these motherfuckers. I want you to break them. I want people to stop you in the gym and be like, you're going to hurt yourself. And he's like, don't lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful, yeah. be violent as a motherfucker. So all of a sudden yeah. now, as mechanical advantage increases, so to speed, I wasn't just trying to punch people. I was trying to put my hands through them and trying to work yeah. on acceleration, which happened with hitting, with sprinting, and really anything that involves some form of either be a punch or some form of sprint with like a hip extension. 
came from that, you know, deadlifting, whatever. So I saw more carryover in just using that. What was amazing to me was how many guys all of a sudden they, you know, where it's heaviest, they come off the ground, off the, let's say the chest on the bench, and then they would just kind of slow into it and then put it away. Whereas I would come off this, you know, the, uh, my chest hard and then work to kind of fucking speed up the bar at all times to the point where they'd be like, dude, you're going to hurt yourself. And I'm like, yeah. this is how we've been training for a long time. And that was one of those things that, uh, when I watched guys lift weights in the gym, they didn't know about compensatory acceleration. Nobody had talked to them, but it was one of those things that, uh, I think played a huge part in my success, especially on the field and being able to translate in it. Cause I was always in this idea that as a mechanical advantage increases, so to speed, I got to fucking put my hands through these people. Or if I'm going to yeah. hit, I'm going to drive through them and aim for a point three feet behind them. Yeah, yeah that's that's good. No, that that's that second piece. So simply put, it's set up and execution. We want to set up similar to how a sport coach would teach the optimal technique for whatever it is the position that they need to do. And then the second is execution. So uh, we're teaching them the load position for their body, and then how we want the muscles. To act, compensatory acceleration, amateurization phase, load yeah. and explode, and then the replication of speed. So, simply put, principle of specificity, not just what you do, how you do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I mean, you know, there's so many research articles out there about how just the intent of the athlete increase makes them more effective in training. You know what I mean? Makes them more effective in terms of expressing strength. And so, one of the things, you know, with my product, we've added like a load cell component. And like, I, for me, I, you know, I'm an experienced athlete. When I train experienced athletes, I can just say, make sure you're pushing as hard as you can. And that's enough, right? That's enough of a cue to kind of get the athlete where I want them mentally, right? You know, like if John was training with me, like he gets it, he's been there. He knows how to push the bar hard. He knows how to push the sled hard. He knows how to do those things. But to teach an athlete, sometimes that external feedback is just as important, right? So like, I've got like a little app on my phone. It gives them their total force, their rate of force development. And I can just be like, Hey man, I think you sandbagged that one. And they say, Oh, okay. And then adding that compelled, uh, competitive element. Like I was talking to the head strength coach here in Washington and they use tendos on all their box squats. I was like, Chad, like, do you really need to do that? And he goes, it makes them be intentful off the bar. And like, that is what we're trying to get out of it. Cause it, it makes the session more effective and it's more sports specific, obviously. Now I still think you're still, uh, this is just my opinion. Now I, I still think even with that, you're still in a very general sense. You're so far away from what you're doing from a, uh, from a sports standpoint. Cause like John will attest this, like when I'm in a drive phase, like it does not mimic mechanically the same thing that you're doing. I'm talking run blocking now for offensive linemen. It does not mimic. Do they still do that? They, they still do it. It's, it happens every mm-hmm. once in a while. Every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, it does not mimic a, back, a barbell back squat almost in any way besides core rigidity, right? The position's different, the position of your hips in relation to your feet. And so again, like I think uh, taking that strength and that intent and then making sure it applies to the position there's still a gap there. Right. So that's where like a weighted sled push becomes advantageous, or that's where, you know, weighted pass set becomes advantageous so that when I get to that unloaded position, neurologically, I have the motor unit recruitment. I have the pathway. I've greased the groove so that now I'm ready to go. Right. And so, yes, you mentioned sprinting and I think the step-ups are excellent. The lunges are excellent, obviously, because it's unilateral work, but think about the contractile velocity. Right. And there are some research to indicate that that kind of loaded stuff can sometimes, depending on the athlete, convolute the signaling that you're actually trying to cultivate, 
right? You are building the horsepower, but obviously that's where programming becomes such a huge element, right? So obviously I'm getting like fired up about it. I'm no, sweating I mean, over well, here. That's right? where, um, you know, we use a ton of uh, PAP post-activation potentiation yeah. and then also the French contrast. So just so, so I mean, dude. Given one piece the, of the puzzle. But. Yeah, I mean, dude, the no, no, foundation no, um, of, yeah. I mean, dude, the foundation of, uh, you know, the majority of my training from college through the NFL involves something heavy, something dynamic. I mean, that's the yeah. reason if you look at all of, power athletes programs from field strong jack street everything i mean there is some version of post activation potentiation pre-fatigue i mean we use all of these principles and it's because i mean if we did something heavy we did something dynamic because yeah. not only do you fatigue neuromuscular pathways then you have to force the body to find new ways to do things which is effectively what strength training is yeah. and so when i see people do something heavy and they don't follow it up with something dynamic it makes me real nervous and, yeah. uh, you know, and like that's was the foundation, whether it be, you know, some form of jump dynamic plyo sprint. I mean, whatever, yeah. you know, banded resistance and, you know, Cal Dietz ended up getting into a big one in the French contrast where he threw another one in, you know, so it was pretty funny with like the bands versus another. So, I mean, that I, one final point, that then piece I'll has to be no. <laughs> so, dude, jump on Logan, in. the test for us as coaches. Uh -huh. So we're yes, toes forward on the squat. And then we set up and set them free on a jump or a broad jump and how they're landing mm -hmm. or a simple change direction. Right. Did they catch or, you know, load toes forward? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well then yeah. we need to continue to go back to the drawing board, provide more opportunity yeah. uh, for that. So it's not this blind expectation. No, no, no. We still need to test, retest and find a way. Because we know when we, they're not going to be focused on their foot position and change direction when they're in game day. So we well, need to make sure it's best position to succeed. When we, and, I, and I wasn't being, and I wasn't being critical of that because I think that's really well thought out and and the right way to go about the strength programming. You know what I mean? But I do think for people who hear that, they say, "Oh, all I need to do." to get faster is I need to do a dynamic step up. I need to do some type of lunge and I will get faster from a low hanging fruit perspective. Of course you will, but eventually there needs to be a progression, which, you know, and I just wanted to kind of call attention to that progression into the next phase of the programming. You know what I mean? Sorry. Oh yeah. And one thing we, we do pride ourselves in is looking at the athlete, like a life cycle of an athlete. So if you're in high school, you're not doing Logan Paulson's program. Yeah. We're doing a program for that novice athlete and so on to, to the college level. And then the very specific, like the awesome work you're doing with the, the offensive lineman, things that he as an individual needs to succeed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, something I got from Charlie Francis, um, you know, I, the for other, those that don't know. Yeah. For those of you guys that don't know, um, you know, whereas Texas is a big Franz Bosch guy. Charlie was kind of, you know, the I'm alpha and the omega for me for the sprint stuff. So uh, I had an opportunity to, to you know, uh, have, you know, work with Char or not work with him, but, you know, have some cool conversations with him before he passed away. Um, after I ruptured my patellar tendon with the EMS devices, and then I dug into a ton of his stuff. So, I mean, a big part of that uh, I got from like a lot of the GPP med ball and I started using mm. the med ball as like my, uh, like, you know, that was a big part of like my dynamic path, but also just within like all of my patterning. So, I mean, it was sets and punches. It was rotation. It was, everything was done within the prep of the med ball from those different stances, right and left. And I think that, uh, that med ball work and using two different, I would use a, a heavier one that would go dead on the wall. Then I'd use a lighter one that bounced. I'd use, you know, different med balls. So there was a reactive one. And I really think that like changing those up to the point where um, I would go do it in pre-practice. And Juan, who was our offensive line coach, came out and filmed it and then was trying to sell it as like clinic film. You know, being mm -hmm. like, hey, like, here's, you know, like we did a bunch of touches, punches, but then I always follow it up with all the med ball stuff. And uh, that was, I think, 
for me personally, like what allowed me to really bridge the gap. And then it was also interesting when other guys would ask to do it, how they couldn't do it. Right. Like it was, it was pretty interesting to be like, fuck dude, why can't these guys do this? Like this is all real natural and I see it. So it was really fascinating um, to constantly be analyzing like not what I was doing, but what other people were doing and then adding different training modalities and then testing them on people and seeing what other people can't. And um, it just kind of, you know, has been the 10 year plus evolution of what we're doing here at Power Athlete came from a ton of those observations in different training systems. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that med ball stuff, like the med ball is such an underrated training tool for that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It just lets you get those, that intent, the velocities, all those things you're looking for. And I just, it's very undervalued, especially for alignment. You know, and I, like even the thing you said about like, and I think this is really, really smart, just having them hold the med ball against their chest when they're doing marches is excellent because like you can't let your rib cage flare and it's just like little cues like that are awesome you know what i mean and just understanding like that that tool has a very broad application i think a lot of people see a med ball they go to the gym and say i'm gonna do my russian twists abs with this or my toe touches with the med ball and it's like no like this is an athletic training tool and i think bringing awareness and attention to that is is fantastic yeah, it's um, it's underused. And, uh, you know, Louis Simmons was a big proponent of it. Uh, the one time we went out, uh, one of the first times I took Tex out there, we showed up and he had uh, this chick who was a badass sprinter. And um, she was on his, uh, you know, belt squat deal. And she was doing all of her, uh, you know, GPB med ball work. She was doing all the, you know, throws and everything from that. Oh, and, wow. I, and uh, you know, Louis like, I, I can't remember the numbers, but her increase, she went from like an average runner to like, you know, Olympic caliber pretty quick within, you know, Louis training system, which is, you know, highly reactive, you know, based upon GP. I mean, you know, Louis, you know, for all of, you know, the powerlifting stuff where he's really made the most impact is within the strength and conditioning performance realm. And it's funny because, you know, people just kind of take what Louis did and they try to implement it, not understanding that like, you know, there was a system and this kind of architecture that he had. And I was fortunate to spend a ton of time with him to understand the architecture and realize that like, you know, the application is one point, but like being able to to see the bigger picture and really mold people into what you need them to be based upon, you know, the, you know, uh, uh, what was it said principle, you know, specific adaptation, yeah. imposed demands, which I think a lot of strength coaches forget. And, you know, yeah. when you talk about this stuff. They're like, well, we box squat, you know, we're doing West side. We have bands and chains. And you're like, well, well, well now why are you doing it? And more importantly, yeah. you know, like it, it's really it, it's fascinating to hear it where people just want to puppet or just mimic what they saw, not necessarily understand the intent of what was done. Was she a distance runner or sprinter? She was a 400 meter. She was a oh. four and 800 meter runner. And I well, know she I, ran some 200. Yeah, I always, uh, go back Ohio to, State. I always go back to this. Like I read this article a couple of years ago, a, a series of articles. Um, and it was about I'm trying to remember exactly. But basically, they took like distance runners and they added two weeks of strength, two days of strength training to their program in addition to their running volumes and times dropped, you know, like at a statistically significant rate, it was like 25 seconds or something crazy like that. They were all hitting PRs just because like they added a little bit of strength. So it's when I hear stories like that, I'm like, is it because this is how I am as like a human being, but is it because of what Louis was doing or was it just because they added, she added something that she hadn't been doing and it was more of a strength stimulus than what she was usually training with. You know what I mean? And so uh, it's I, probably a little bit of both. Right, um, yeah. you know, I I've seen, um, you know, the way that Louie had, especially with his special exercises and, you know, he was a big Berkashansky guy and every drawing in every one of Berkashansky's books, Louie effectively turned into a piece of equipment to the point where I'd oh, be wow. like, you, 
you know, I, I would always joke with Louis. He's like, oh, we got this new thing. I'm like, you going to pay Verkashansky on, on this deal? Because that drawing was in there. From like the plyo sleds and this. Yeah. I mean, it, it was yeah. just, you know, he had like uh, the the one that I got from Verkashansky that Louis and I talked about was the idea of using a 18-inch cambered bar and then bringing mm-hmm. it down and then having it bounce off of foam and then using it as a reaction. Right. You know, which is in Verkashansky's Science and Practice or in – um. Uh, no, not super uh, training, not in super training. It's in, in the other one. The other one. Yeah. The special exercise. <laughs> so like, you know, and Louis over there using it. I'm like, you know, and he knows nobody's going to read this shit. So yeah. it was fun. <laughs> and I think the reason he liked me was the fact that I had actually read everything and yeah. we would make jokes with him about it. But, uh, you know, since, you know, he's passed, but, um, I bet you it's a little bit of both one, uh, you know, right place, wrong or sorry, right place, right time. Uh, you know, individual, like, Hey, I, I have to do this much running. Here's how much training time I have available. So it was probably a right. sweet spot. You yeah. know, and the girl probably was, you know, um, uh, like we've seen athletes like add strength training and get faster to a certain point. It's, yeah, and then it's all, not, yeah, it's not a one-to-one unless yeah. that become, you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, your buddy's like, oh, hey, I started taking copper and I feel great. And then everybody's like, oh, I'm going to take some copper and they don't feel yeah. great. Well, it just so happens he was deficient and you weren't. So I think within the training thing, sometimes you get the exact stimulus you need at the right time. And that's when people make some amazing deals. Whereas the same people, let's say strength wasn't their limiting factor. Maybe it was technique. Maybe it was, uh, you know, replication, you know, so it really comes down to what the athlete needs at that point. Well, I go back to the fighter analogy and like the guy who just boxes all the time is leaving some, something on the table without doing strength training. Right. And a lot of distance runners think, Oh, the, the weight training is going to get me bulky. It's going to inhibit my ability to run. So there are probably, deficient in the dosing like you're talking about it's not copper necessarily but it's it's iron in this instance right in terms of they need a little bit more resistance training to help with kind of build some horsepower up and yeah i think that's that's always an interesting conundrum and that's why strength conditioning is so fun i think yeah i mean whereas you look at tyson fury i don't even know what that dude lifts weights he does box a lot though he does box a lot <laughs> and he's so awkward and weird he's six nine he's got such a funky body such a long reach and he's just got he's just blessed with that fucking chin yeah i mean dude uh that shot that he took i don't know if you're a boxing fan but that shot yeah. that wilder gave him that knocked him down like everybody fucking it didn't matter if you were in the ring or if you were watching on tv everybody felt that like i was like oh god my jaw started yeah. to hurt yeah and he fucking shook it off and got up so i mean like straight up like uh you know when, when he's fighting brad pitt in uh in snatch he's like a fucking gypsy piker i mean there's a reason like those guys are harder than coffin nails which is what i've been using on hammer for years harder than coffin nails where i got that but it's a good one yeah so if uh if people are excited and um i just know that like i got through the website and it's kind of not very fluid in terms of being able to order and get this uh like i gotta reach out to you there's customization it's this like there's Unfortunately, there's um, some user some journey steps. experiences some that steps. we'd have to, to go through to make sure that we yes. can get this in people's hands. Yes. Yeah, so what I would say is just email me, www.catton, which is kick-ass take names, um, strength.com. And uh, you can email me at, uh, what, I don't even know my email. Jeez, that's terrible. Info, info at catandstrength.com. And there we go. So email me there. And so again, what we're trying to do is because we're trying to work with like a, a reseller and work pricing out. And we want to make talk sure to Sornex? Have, have we, you talked uh, to Sornex? Not talked to Sornex yet, no. Okay. Well, um, we'll connect after and I'll plug you in with, uh, with Bert. And those guys at Sornex have been like incredible partners for Power Athlete. And dude, we count them as kindred spirits. And uh um, you know, they just had summer strong, but like when I was looking at this, I was like, man, like, 
if we could take this out to Sornex and put Bert and those guys through it, I think uh, they would of anybody see the value and they come from like the throwing world and which oh, awesome. I, I always joke within the throwing world that they're just uh, a bunch of football players that moms wouldn't sign the pres- uh, permission slips. It's true. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely like, dude, you guys are all true. big and strong. Look at double A. I'm like, your mom didn't sign a permission slip, dude. You fucking yeah. look how thick you are. So they, uh, they're kindred spirits. But um, in terms of like understanding the technology and being able to plant it, like those would be the guys that I would introduce you to. That would be great. Yeah. And so obviously just email me because we want to basically like kind of have a slow rollout, make sure that it fits your needs and that, you know, that it gets a new piece of technology and we want to be able to accommodate what your specific thing is doing. So email me. Instagram, DM me, and we'll uh, have a conversation about it and make sure that it's right for you and uh, fits what you're looking for. Because again, like uh, it's the the website is a is a journey. You put it very nicely, John. Thank you for saying it like that. Um, and well, uh, we have a lot of branding all- talks about users journey, and uh, this is something <laughs> where like increased payability, how how many clicks I can get to a credit card, like these are. Uh, as much as I love to bang weights and love and talk about this and the podcast and all the cool shit we do, uh, a big part of my day is spent in this like narrative of figuring out how to get to people to make a buying decision faster. I mean, the, the buyer's got to want it. So let's make it work as hard as possible. <laughs> let's, let's make uh, it work for it. No, yeah, again, because exactly. uh, I got to email the dude and then, uh, you know, I got to send you a, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, like a check. Yeah, like an inter- like an interview. It's got to be like an interview. We talk. You know, you get meet the guy in the raincoat down in the corner. That's our that's our experience. No, but yeah, we're, we're working on that. Hopefully, that'll get better. And um, hopefully, once this uh, reseller thing gets out, the website will get much better. But sweet, look forward to it. Yeah, and thanks. if people yeah. want to get a hold of you other than info at Kick Katen Kick Ass yeah, Katen Kick Ass Take Names Strength Kick Ass Kick Ass. Is there uh, social uh, media? Yeah. So obviously I have a personal Instagram, which is mostly football related. It's Logan underscore Paulson 82. And obviously for the product, it's Cadden underscore strength, which is, and if you want to get in contact with me there, we check that pretty regularly. And yeah, we're, we're just uh, trying to build something here dude. from a guy who used to play football. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Uh, well, one, you know, ex NFL players always stoked to have another NFL player come on and support any NFL veteran that is you know, obviously intelligent, uh, well-spoken, has a thought in his head and just isn't trying to fucking floss and fucking, you know, pop bottles <laughs> and fucking make it rain at the strip club on the weekends. That's actually trying to do something in a positive light to create some bitch and training tech so we can actually make better athletes and fucking better humans. What do you got? That, Nothing? Yeah. Nothing. Uh, my brother-in-law's a big Washington fan. So any, oh, good. Uh, any insight on this year? Um, yeah, I think they're... It depends on Carson Wentz. It depends on what he brings to the table. Obviously, OTA periods look really, really good in terms of pushing the ball down the field, arm strength. Like they haven't had a guy like that from a talent standpoint, physical tools standpoint since probably I'm gonna say Ever. Robert Robert Griffin, maybe in terms of talent, arm talent. Um, but you know, obviously there's the mental side of playing the position, which he seems to have down, but for him it's more like um the confidence thing. Can he kind of maintain that throughout the year? Because right now he's got the weapons. Jahan Dotson, the first round picks looks great. But again, like that's the big question for me is can he kind of maintain this level of production and confidence throughout the season? If he can, I think there'll be a playoff team, but that's a big if in my book. Is, um, I mean, obviously Ron Rivera is there. Is uh, John Matsko? Do you ever run into him? He, he, yeah, he just retired and yeah. he was awesome because he was a psycho in a good way. And then, <laughs> so he was my uh, offensive line coach at the Chiefs. And, was uh, he really? He st- yeah, he still texts me a bunch. Um, but yeah, I always like Matsko. Uh, I, I mean, 
Oh no, but yeah, Matt Scow's the, the old line coach. He's here. Yeah. He's like the old uh, yeah. kind of grizzly. It's crazy, man. He's he does a really nice job. I, I never heard of him until he came here, but he does an yeah. excellent job. Uh, if, if you get a chance to talk to him, uh, mention that you were on the podcast and we spoke. Um, he he okay. still texts me a bunch, and and obviously oh, awesome. Ron Rivera and I. He was a former Cal guy, and he was our linebackers coach in Philly. Uh, you know, we've always stayed fairly tight. So, and then um, well, you know Juan Castillo. <laughs> yes, he's is, the tight end Juan- coach. He's the tight end coach now, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Uh, ask Juan. Be like, hey, I was on the uh, podcast with John Wellborn and tell Juan, uh, quit stealing all my shit. <laughs> I'll have to let him know. I'll yeah. have to let him know. Yeah, no, those sure. are, uh, dude, yeah, Juan um, drafted me or, you know, was the offensive line coach with Andy's first year and was my offensive line coach all through Philly. And then I went to Kansas City and um, uh, Mike Solari was there and then he became the coordinator. And then uh, Matsko was our guy. So, and then obviously Great. we got to play for him. And, wow, that's yeah. awesome. I know, and, and you know, now the world's meeting. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a very, very small world when you push it out is. to the fringe. So cool, yeah. man. Th- thanks for coming on Power Athlete Radio. And here's another one. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. To learn more about Logan Paulson and his cat and strength device, you can look for him on Instagram at Logan underscore Paulson82. Or head to www. I don't even know why I say W's anymore. Everyone knows that that goes before everything. It's Cat and Strength, K-A-T-N, strength.com. Until next time, uh, bye! Bye!